morning, everyone. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, I was a little worried when I saw Matt standing up here and I saw that the, the pulpit height fit him perfectly. And I was like, I'm just not sure I'm going to be able to see over that pulpit. So if I stand on my toes here, uh, you'll know why. But um, your church is in our prayers often over at Placerita Bible Church. Um, our elder team and our church body is so thankful for you guys and for the faithful witness and the testimony that you guys are in this valley. And if, if you'll permit me for a moment, um, I appreciate Matt's kind words, but I'd like to just say something about your elders before we dive into our text this morning. I have had the opportunity to get to know Matt a little bit over the last year and a half. Uh, he lives next door to two of my closest friends, Scott and Sarah Mallon, who are actually here with us this morning as well. And so in my interactions with Matt, though, I've never failed to be encouraged. I've never failed to just have my heart blessed by talking to him. And as a fellow elder, we often talk those same principles of eldering. What's eldering like at your church? What's it like at our church? And what was revealed to me was how seriously he takes that role and listening to him, how seriously the rest of your elder team takes that role. Uh, it is not something they enter into lightly to shepherd your church body. And it's a weighty responsibility to be an elder. It's, it's something that brings joy and blessing, but it also brings tears and heartache and difficulties. And so I just want to encourage you guys, if I may, just pray for your elders and let them know you're praying for them and then thank them. Just thank them. There's a lot of hours that go into being an elder. So I just wanted to take that opportunity to let you know that I'm blessed by your elder team and by their faithful service to you guys. So open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. That will be our passage for this morning. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 14 together. Colossians 3, 1 through 14. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you are the creator and sustainer of this world, the king, ruler, and judge of all mankind, and the one who redeemed our souls from sin. We are so thankful to be gathered here together this morning, thankful for the chance to spend time with other brothers and sisters in Christ, 
Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the words of life and truth that it provides, for the wisdom and guidance it provides. And we're thankful that you reveal yourself to us through your word. So, Father, as we look at it now, let us see you. Let us see your son. And let us be changed as a result of that holy encounter. May the truth of your word challenge us to our very core. God, may it deepen our affections for you. May it deepen our hatred for sin. And may it cause us to see your greatness in increasingly deeper and richer ways. Amen. Well, in the busyness of life, I don't often have time to watch movies these days anymore. Uh, When we do watch movies as a family, we're generally watching uh, Hallmark or family films. But when I get the chance, I do thoroughly enjoy a good action movie still. I always have ever since I was a little boy. I love watching heroic characters fighting against injustice and tyranny, doing what's right no matter the cost, um, defending the helpless and the innocent, standing up to bullies. All those things appeal to me. Plus the really cool stuff they get to do, like hang from helicopters and jump in slow motion when an explosion's going off behind them. But one thing I've noticed in all of the action movies that I've watched through the years is that there's a lot of cliches that appear in every single action movie. It's oftentimes the same villain with the same motivation, the same flawed but redeemed character, the same basic plot even, just in a different setting or in a different era, a different time frame. One of those cliches, though, that always happens in these action movies is generally towards the end, where our hero gets into a climactic fight with the villain. And there's always that moment for a very split second where the filmmakers want you to think that the hero might actually lose the fight. And of course, we know they're not going to. It never happens. We know that the hero's always going to win, but they try for a moment. So they defeat the villain. They start to celebrate. They kiss the leading lady, high-five the sidekick. And right when the credits should start to roll, the bad guy, though, who we thought was defeated, always pops back up again. He rears his ugly head, uh, you know, makes himself a threat again. And as an audience, we always see it coming before the character does. So we're screaming at the television screen, Hey, look out behind you! What in the world? Why didn't you finish him off when you had the chance? And so before the movie can end, that hero has to deal with that bad guy one more time. There's always now a finish to that fight before the movie ends. And as silly as an opening illustration as that might seem, I believe, though, that there are times in life where our life is similar to that action movie cliché. We go through life's up and downs as believers, trying to do the right thing. We go through its highs and its lows, its trials and its struggles, its joys and its tribulations. In the day-to-day of life, we battle temptation and sin. We try to grow in our spiritual disciplines, to mature in our faith, to grow in our sanctification. But when we least expect it, though, that sin that we thought we had dealt with once again rears its ugly head. We thought it was gone. We thought we'd put it down, but instead it comes back. And we find ourselves frustrated and saying things like, I thought I dealt with this. Why did it come back? How did it come back? Maybe it's not even necessarily a sin from the past that we thought we dealt with. Sometimes it's a sin that we've never been able to fully conquer. A sin that we feel powerless to defeat. And as we battle it, we feel like we've plateaued spiritually. We just can't seem to make any sort of progress anymore. We feel like we're on a bicycle, pedaling as hard as we can, but we're not moving forward. We have no traction. We cry out and we ask ourselves and the Lord, how come I can't seem to have victory and grow in this area? And we end up feeling discouraged and frustrated and lacking joy and lacking spiritual passion. 
Am I the only one who's ever struggled this way or has anybody else ever had times in life just like this? I think we all have because as believers, the battle that we fight with sin is a daily battle. My close friend, Pat Hamlin, taught from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in this pulpit just a few Sundays back. And as he pointed out, we are new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. We're no longer enslaved to sin, but we still battle the remnants of that sin. Positionally, we know that Christ made us alive and set us free. But there are days when practically we still feel the heavy weight of that sin on our shoulders. In this chapter of Colossians, Paul addresses this issue of our ongoing battle with sin. He's writing the Colossian believers to tell them of the need to put sin to death. But he doesn't just give them the command to do so. He also gives them a path to do so. He doesn't just tell them they need to be holy and leave them to figure it out on their own. He tells them how to go about it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three principles to apply in our battle against sin. Three ways to have victory over sin from this passage in Colossians. If you had to pick one word to sum up the book of Colossians, it would be the word Christ. Or if you were to pick a phrase, it would be the preeminence of Christ. Or maybe the sufficiency of Christ or the superiority of Christ. Over and over again in the book of Colossians, Paul exalts Christ and he proclaims the superiority of Christ over everything. Paul deals with heresies facing the Colossian believers by magnifying who Christ is. He reminds them of the greatness of the work and the person of Christ. He explains how the life of Christ and the life of the believer are completely intertwined. They're intricately linked together and he explains the ramifications of that link. In chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that it is in Christ we have redemption and forgiveness. In verse 15, he tells us that Christ is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. In verse 16, he tells us that Christ is the creator and the ruler. All things were created through him, by him, and for him. In verse 18, Christ is the head of the church and is the preeminent one. That word for preeminent means to hold first place. Nothing surpasses Christ. In verse 27, Christ is the mystery hidden for ages, but which has now been revealed, and he is the hope of glory. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells us that in Christ are all the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, we're told that as believers, we have been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, and we're now alive with Christ, all because of the work of Christ. In verses 16 through 23, Paul lays out how Christ is superior to all earthly wisdom and earthly religions. And by keeping our hearts and our minds fixed on him, we won't be led astray. For Paul, everything is about Christ. And this is the message he's giving to the Colossian believers and to us today. Now, as Paul gets to chapter 3, he then transitions then to how these truths should affect how we live. Because of everything we've just talked about in the previous two chapters live this way because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for you and because of who you are in him, deal with your sin, walk in a manner worthy of him. Because of these truths that he's been writing about, put sin to death, put off the old self and be renewed in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we put sin to death and have victory in Christ and victory over sin? Three ways. Principle number one to having victory over sin. Have a heavenly mindset. Have a heavenly mindset, verses one through four. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. A better translation of verse 1 there would actually be, since you have been raised with Christ. Paul is not asking a question of the believer here. He's making a declarative statement. He spent the last two chapters telling us about our standing in Christ. And that as believers, we were buried and raised with Christ. So he's not asking the believer if they've been raised. He's saying, since you have been raised. Since this is true of you, seek the things above where Christ is. In verse 2, Paul says to set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Both the words seek and those words set your minds, that phrase, are used in the present tense in this passage. That means it's to be a continuous process. We are to keep seeking, to continually be setting our minds on heavenly things. This is not something that takes place one time and then I'm set from that point on. It's not something I only do on Sunday mornings and that'll carry me through every day of the week. Rather, this is something that I must do every single day. I need to continuously be seeking heavenly things. If I were training to run a marathon, I wouldn't have one single training session, run a long distance, and then I'm ready to go. If I were to train that way, I probably wouldn't be able to walk the next day. But rather, I start small, and I train a little bit, and every day I go a little bit further. Every day I go a little bit longer, and as I do that, the runs get a little bit easier. That's the idea being conveyed here. We're to continually be seeking heavenly things. Do you want to have victory over sin? Then continually seek after heavenly things. Continually choose to pursue heavenly things. Go through each day with a heavenly mindset. What does that mean though? What does it mean to have a heavenly mindset? I'll give you two different ways that we can measure that. Number one, it means that we have a heavenly value system. We understand what matters most in life and we align our priorities accordingly. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In this well-known passage, Paul has listed his resume for us, and he's expressed his realization that there was nothing that compared to knowing and gaining Christ. All the things that he grasped for, all the things he chased after, meant nothing. His ethnic heritage didn't matter. His excellent education didn't matter. His family and social status didn't matter. His religious training, his attempts to follow strictly all the rules and regulations of his religion, none of those things mattered in view of knowing Christ and gaining a reconciled relationship with him. We read that word rubbish, and it's kind of an interesting word. I think we tend to chuckle or laugh at it. Our English translation loses a little bit of the shock value of that word. That word literally means human waste or dung. Paul says that gaining Christ, knowing Christ, the preeminent one who's in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, makes everything else that we're tempted to chase after look like dung. And so when I value Christ in that way, my priorities will align themselves accordingly. So I need to have a heavenly value system and know what is important. Secondly, I need to understand that heaven is our true home. Heaven is my true home. Hebrews 11.13 tells us that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. 
Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Christian in John Bunyan's masterpiece, The Pilgrim's Progress, we seek a place that can never be destroyed, one that is pure and that fadeth not away, and it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be given at the appointed time to them that seek it with all their heart. We are not of the world. But we do live in it. We need to be able to work, eat, and provide for ourselves and the families that we have while we're here on earth. The Lord has also given us things for our enjoyment, for our recreation. But sometimes, and sometimes I think that we forget that this is simply a temporary stop on our journey to eternity, though. A little over a week ago, I had the opportunity to go backpacking with my son uh, and another dad from church with his boys. We headed up Highway 395, spent a couple of days up in Little Lakes Valley, just north of Bishop. And for those of you that know anything about backpacking, it's not like car camping where I can stuff as many supplies in the car as possible. All I can take is what I have in that backpack. And the heavier that backpack is, the harder my hike in is going to be. And when you're backpacking, there are things that are both enjoyable about it and there are things that are not enjoyable about it. I know some of you kind of looked at me and you're like, why would you do that though? Why would you carry a heavy backpack and hike miles to sleep in a tent? Well, there are things that we do enjoy about it. I enjoy the peace and the quiet. I enjoy the fact that I had zero emails or phone calls from work. I did not enjoy, or shall I say my back did not enjoy, sleeping on the cold, hard ground. I enjoy the power and the creativity of God on display in the lakes and the mountains and the trees around us. I did not enjoy being eaten alive by mosquitoes though. They love me for some reason. All the other guys on the trip, I think, got less bites because I took most of them. They were, I, I had bites through my clothes somehow. I don't know how that works. I enjoy the memories created, though, standing next to a lake and fishing with my son. After a few days of being there, though, I don't enjoy dehydrated food. I, I'm really longing for my wife's home cooking at that point. And so on the last day, as we're packing up for this trip and we're, we're ready to go home, I felt that. I felt that sense of being ready to go home. And I wasn't ready to go home because I hadn't enjoyed myself while I was there. But I was ready to go home because I knew I wasn't meant to stay long term. I knew that it was simply a short trip for a season, for a time. And as I thought about that, it caused me to reflect on how our time on this earth is like that backpacking trip. It's just a short stay here. It's a journey that we're on where there's going to be good and bad times, where there's going to be things we enjoy and things we don't enjoy. But I shouldn't plan on staying. In the end, I need to be looking forward to going home, to heaven. In my pack, as I'm hiking, I carry only the few minimum items that I need to sustain myself for the short time that I'm there. The more I try to carry, the more weighed down that hike's going to be. During our time here on earth, the Lord has provided for us the few things we need to sustain ourselves. And when I try to collect or gather the things that the world says I need, though, the more weighed down I'm going to be on my journey towards Christ-likeness. So I need to live in that way where it's a temporary stop. I want to be pitching a tent here on this earth, not trying to build a mansion here. Because when I don't live that way, that's when my priorities become skewed. What I should value gets a little lost. What ends up becoming most important to me when I don't live with this mindset is not what is most important to the one sitting at the right hand of God. And I think that if we were to be honest with ourselves, I think we would all admit that sometimes we cling a little too closely to the comforts of this earth. We work a little too hard for financial security. 
for a title, for a position, for that bigger, better house, for that perfect job, for the degree that gives me those ABC letters after my name. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves. We want to be wise with the money the Lord's given us. We want to be take, able to take care of the families that he's entrusted to us. We want to be wise and plan for the future. But does the pursuit of those things fill up our minds to such a degree that there's no room left to think about heavenly things? That's when these things become a problem. When they skew my value system and they cause me to forget that heaven is my true home. Yes, I want to be a hard worker that honors the Lord before my employer. I want to have a good reputation among my coworkers. But am I more willing to handle the extra tasks at work given to me by my boss or picking up the slack from my coworkers than I am to come home and selflessly serve and love my wife like Christ loved the church? Do I work as hard to raise my children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord as I do to make sure that my portfolio is stable and secure? Will I as openly and boldly proclaim the gospel with the same intensity and passion that I do when I'm sharing my political opinions? Can you tell as much about what I'm learning from the word of God as you can about what I know about the sports team that I follow or the new car that I want to buy? Having a heavenly mindset means that I live life in light of eternity. It means that what's most important in my life is that which is most important to my Lord, who's there in heaven preparing a place for me. And what does matter in heaven? That the word of God and the gospel is being proclaimed in a lost and dying world. That Christ is being exalted and holding first place in everything. That the church is growing and being salt and light in a dark world. And that it is eagerly awaiting the return of its savior. That's what matters in heaven and has value. And everything else must fall in line behind that. I'm not saying that these various aspects of daily life are not important. What I am saying though, is that we must never forget what is most important. Why? Verses three and four, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We've died with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're hidden with him. And at this very moment, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And nothing this world offers can compare to the glory that awaits us when we get to see him face to face. So what does this look like practically, though? How can I regularly set my mind on heavenly things and seek the things above? By daily preaching the gospel to myself by daily preaching the gospel to myself. If you get nothing else from anything I say this morning, please let this be it. We need to daily preach the gospel to ourselves. When I struggle the most, it's because I've stopped preaching to myself. I stop remembering what Christ did for me. I stop remembering who I was before Christ, who I now am in Christ. I lose my wonder of the cross because I've let myself get distracted by the glossy but superficial fluff of the world around me. This idea of remembering biblical truths is seen throughout scripture. We see throughout the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, I want you to build a memorial here. Why? So that you remember what I've done for you. When they crossed the Jordan after coming out of Egypt, he says, build a memorial here so that you remember your slavery and now you remember your deliverance. We see David do it throughout the Psalms where he's, he's crying out to the Lord in his struggles. Oh, my soul, why are you in despair? And then he reminds himself of what God has done for him 
And that is what brings him hope now. And we see Paul do it over and over again throughout his epistles, constantly reiterating these truths of the gospel to his readers as he's instructing them in how to be sanctified. We see this in Ephesians 2, where Paul reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. We see it again in Colossians 2.13, just one chapter back. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive. I need to daily remind myself that I was dead in my sin, completely and utterly lost, without hope, an enemy of God. I need to remind myself that I brought nothing to the table. There was nothing lovely or redeeming in me. I was a filthy wretch. And then I need to remind myself of what the Son of God did for me. That for reasons I can't begin to comprehend, Jesus was nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he bore the full weight of the unrelenting wrath and judgment of God that should have been poured out on me. And I need to remind myself of who I now am in Christ. A ransom and redeemed child of the King. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Set free from the power of sin. Beloved by God and an ambassador for him on this earth. If I think about these things every day, throughout my day, that will cultivate in me a heavenly mindset. That will motivate in me a pursuit of holiness. The great Puritan John Owen said, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out the gospel in our souls. I'll say that again. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out the gospel in our souls. Preaching the gospel to myself gives me a heavenly mindset. And when I have that heavenly mindset, I'm now ready to move on to principle number two. Put off the old self and its practices, verses 5 through 9. Put off the old self and its practices. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul gives us a contrast here. If heavenly things are what we are to set our minds on, then it's the opposite of that. Earthly things are what we are to put off, to put to death, and to put away. We get a therefore in verse 5, so we know that it's connected to the previous section. Since you have been raised with Christ, since you are a new creation, since you are focused on heavenly things, these sins no longer have a place in you. So cast them off. Put them to death. That word for death carries the idea of making something dead by depriving it of its power and its strength. Romans 6.22 reminds us that we've been set free from sin through Christ's death. He's already defeated sin and broke its power. So while I'll still daily fight it, I have everything I need in him to do that. Through the strength of his grace and the power of the spirit, I'm going to fight sin in such a way that its grasp on me is continually being weakened. As I seek the things above, that hold of sin will grow less and less. I can't do this, though, if I haven't first set my mind on the things above. If my thoughts and my affections are on earthly things, I'll never be able to put to death what is earthly. To fight sin, to put it to death, 
I have to prepare my mind for the battle, though. I have to ready my mind for the, the danger that lays ahead, the danger of sin. My heart and my passion is to serve the church and to spend time in the church. But my day job, though, is in law enforcement. Um, and over the last 18 years of being in law enforcement, I've been able to uh, serve you know, several hundred search warrants where we're putting on armor, we're putting on gear, and we're going through a door. And every time I do that, though, I have the same routine. I start by just examining my gear, putting on my belt, my vest. I check all of my equipment. I make sure it's functioning properly. I put on my helmet. And then once that physical preparation is done, then I start to prepare my mind. I usually get a little sober right before we're going to drive to the location where we're going to break down somebody's door. And the reason for that is because I don't know what lays on the other side of that door. I don't know what dangers I might face. It might be something where everybody's compliant and it goes well. But there's also the possibility that it doesn't go well. And so I prepare my mind every time because I don't want to walk in there complacent or nonchalant. That's what Paul is getting at here. If you're going to have victory over sin, you need to wake up ready for it that day, preparing your mind. Why? Because if I'm not killing sin, then sin will be killing me, as John Owen said. Because if I don't realize the dangers that sin poses to me, then I'm not going to be ready to fight it. I need to prepare my mind to fight sin. Paul starts by first speaking out against the list of sins that involve the misuse and the perversion of what God made as a good gift. He addresses the external expressions of this when he speaks of sexual immorality. This is sexual sin in all its forms. Adultery, fornication, prostitution, pornography. But he also addresses the internal forms of those sexual sins, impurity, passions, evil desires. Each of these convey the internal lust and the sensual desires that, if left unchecked, will lead to an external expression of immorality. He speaks of putting to death and putting away covetousness, which in this usage, it's referring to that desire to have more. It's an insatiable appetite. I want more and more and more. And it reminds us that indulging in these sins is idolatry because they're an expression of the fact that I'm worshiping myself in that moment. I'm chasing after what I think will please me and me alone. In verses 6 and 7, he reminds us that these sins bring about God's judgment. And once again, he reminds us that we once walked in these sins and in the shadow of God's judgment. We start to see a little bit of a pattern here. As Paul challenges us to pursue holiness, over and over, he tells us to remember who we were. And then he contrasts that with who we are now. He continues in verses 8 and 9, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In verse 8, Paul tells us to put sin away. And that word for away means to cast it off, to get rid of it. He lists sins of attitude towards how we treat others. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying. And he's saying, since you've been raised with Christ and your fellow believers have been raised with Christ, don't treat them this way. He says, remember in verse 9, you've put off the old self already. The words put off means that you're separating yourself from it. So as, as we're dealing with sin, we're weakening it and putting it to death by pursuing heavenly things. We're casting it off and then we're separating ourselves from it. One of the pictures that Paul's painting here is the idea of removing old garments. And I want to strip off those old nasty garments and I want to get rid of them. I want to separate myself from them. I'm not going to hang them back up in my closet to, to use for another day. While backpacking, 
you know, we spoke of that earlier. One of the keys is to be as lightweight as possible, um, which means you bring the least amount of clothes as possible. So I wear the same outfit the entire time I'm backpacking. I know it's gross, but it's the best way to backpack. You bring maybe one or two extra changes in case they get wet, but that's it. You also don't shower when you're backpacking because I don't have my trailer out there. I don't have, you know, you're in the middle of, of the wilderness, so you don't shower. So by the time that trip is done, you're pretty ripe. And so one of the things I look forward to when I'm done backpacking is going home and taking a nice hot shower. But when I do that, when I get home, it would make no sense for me to, to take off those old dirty clothes, to rinse and clean myself in the shower, to get out of the shower, and then to put those nasty clothes back on. It makes no sense. I wouldn't do that. So Paul's saying, why do we do that with sin though? Those old garments have been taken off. You've been washed by the blood of Christ. You've been renewed in him. You've been cleansed from sin. So why are you going to put those old, nasty, sinful garments back on? No, cast them away. Get rid of them. What are some practical ways I can do that, though? How can I put off some of those sins that I'm struggling with? Number one, I want to take away opportunities for sin. I want to stay away from places, situations, or people that might lead to temptation. I don't want to go to that part of town or into that place if it's going to lead to sinful desire. I don't want to watch that movie or read that book or listen to that album if it's going to lead to opportunities for sin. Now, we kind of chafe against that because for some that sounds restrictive and we start to hear objections like, but isn't that legalism? No, it's not. Legalism is that when I'm doing good works, I think those good works either earn me merit or favor with God in gaining salvation or in my daily walk with him. Taking away opportunities for sins means that I hate my sins so much, the sin for which Christ died, that I want to run from it. And that has nothing to do with legalism. So I'm going to take away every opportunity that I can that might lead me to sin. I also want to place obstacles in the way of my sin. Not only do I want to take away opportunity, I want to make it hard for me to sin. And I want to do that through accountability. I want to do that through being open about my sin with other believers who can mentor me and shepherd me. I don't want to give myself an easy path to sin. I want to have as many obstacles in the way as possible. And in doing so, hopefully by God's grace, the harder it is for me to get to sin, maybe I'll stop before I get there. That's why I want obstacles in the way of my sin. I also can put sin to death by clinging to the word of God and by studying it. We need to stop viewing the reading of God's word as a checklist that we have to do as believers because if we don't, we're going to lose a little bit of favor that day from God. And instead, we need to view it as something I want to do because my soul needs the nourishment, the guidance, and the protection that God's word provides. On reading the word of God, Spurgeon said, what can be better for informing the understanding than the word of God? Would you know God? Would you know yourself? Then search this book. Would you know time and how to spend it? Would you know eternity and how to be prepared for it? Then search ye this book. Would you know the evil of sin and how to be delivered from it? Would you know the plan of salvation and how you can have a share in it? This is the book which will instruct you in all these matters. There is nothing which a man needs to know for the affairs of his soul between here and heaven of which this book will not tell him. This book 
should be our most valued and treasured possession in this life. This book is the very living and breathing word of God. And it contains the wondrous truths of how God sent his son to save and to redeem wretched sinners by miraculously giving them new life, by miraculously raising dead hearts to life. Do we believe that truth? I mean, do we really, really believe it? Because if we do, then this same book that proclaims to us the message that is powerful enough to raise us from the dead has the same power to take our now alive hearts and give us the tools we need to put sin to death. It has the same power. If it can raise me from the dead, it has the same power to help me pursue righteousness and holiness now. Christ already defeated sin at the cross and in the tomb. And that same power that caused him to defeat sin and death is contained in this book. So I need to cling to this book. I need to read it. I need to memorize it. I need to meditate on it. I need to treasure it. I love the fact that you guys had a memory verse up there earlier that you did. Because the problem when we become adults is, is we tend to think that memorizing the Bible is only for Awanas, right? And we did it when we got the little badge and the star and the little jewels. It's not. It's for all of us. And we need to memorize this book. And we say, well, it's easy for kids to memorize the word of God. It's so much harder as adults. You know what? We memorize a lot of things. If I spend enough time in the kitchen, I'll memorize a recipe. When I'm working on my car, I'll memorize how to do that. If I'm a sports fan, I'll memorize the stats from all the players that I have on my team. If I'm wanting to buy a new you know, car, boat, truck, whatever, I'll memorize the specs on that. We memorize a lot of things. And then we make an excuse about why we can't memorize the word of God, though. Isn't this a uttermost more value and importance though. And then lastly, to have victory over sin, we can replace sin. We want to replace it, which leads to our final principle, principle number three. We're replacing it with righteousness by putting on righteousness, verses 10 through 14. When I remove those old garments, it does me no good to walk around unclothed, to be warm, to be covered. I need to now replace those garments with new ones. Look, sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. But it's a temporary pleasure. So when I remove it, though, to help prevent me from putting it back on, I need to replace it with something else. I need to have something else in its place. And I want to replace it with what is eternal and what is heavenly. I want to replace it with the joys and the riches of knowing Christ and living with him and living for him. I think that one of the reasons that we struggle with saying no to sin and the process of putting it off is because all we do is try to say no to sin. It seems like a confusing statement. I'll, I'll say it again. We struggle with saying no to sin because all we do is try to say no to sin. And what I mean by that is I can only say no to something for so long in my own willpower. My daughter's here this morning. Well, both my daughters are. Um, and they both are amazing bakers in the kitchen, especially my middle daughter. And, and she makes the, I mean, every day she's making something amazing. And I have a weakness for pastries. So as I walk into the kitchen and there's pastries all over the counter when I come home from work, I can only say no for so long out of my own willpower. And I'll walk by that plate of cookies or the muffins or whatever it might be. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. No, nope, not going to do it. And then at some point, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'll run later. It'll be okay. I earned this today. Because I can only say no for so long. What do I have to do? I have to replace it though. Okay. If I'm doing that with sin though, I'm just trying to say no to it. I'm only going to last for so long. I start my day. I'm not going to sin today. Not going to sin today. Oh, I sinned. Okay. I'll start tomorrow pursuing holiness. Not going to sin today. Not going to sin. Oh, I sinned again. I'll tomorrow. No, I need to say no to sin. And then I need to say yes to righteousness. 
I need to replace those sinful actions and thoughts with imitating my Savior, with godly, righteous responses and actions instead. That sin's going to have a harder time coming back and taking root because I've replaced it with something else. John Owen said, Do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin, but rather seek to fill it up with the spirit of life so there is no longer room for sin. In verse 10, Paul tells us how we've put on the new self now. One that is renewed in knowledge. Knowledge of what? The gospel. Who I was before Christ. What Christ did for me. Who I am in Christ. Knowledge of God's word. Knowledge of God's character. And this new self, in verse 11, unites us with all other believers. In Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, no slave, no free. It is all about Christ. He has first place in everything. So what are the things that I replace sin with? Look at verses 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Before he lists the specific characteristics that we're to replace sin with, Paul tells us that we are chosen by God. That truth should humble us and fill us with overflowing joy. God loves, and for reasons unknown to me, chooses me. And when he chose me, he set me apart. He created me for righteousness, and he gave me the ability to choose holiness. I didn't have that option before. I was a slave to sin. I couldn't but not sin. But now I'm set free from sin. What a weight that is taken off of our shoulders now in Christ. To know that I no longer have to sin, but I can flee from it. I can put it to death. I can cast it off and I can put it away. He also tells us that we are loved by God. He says, you are chosen and beloved. Think about that for a minute. God is not an austere God who is far off. He's not a God who's given us a set of rules and regulations and is angry when we don't meet them, but rather Christ paid the price for our sin. And now as his children, God loves us. And here's the most amazing part. He loves us with the same love that he loves his own son. You want to be motivated in the fight against sin? Dwell on that truth. You are beloved by God. That gives me motivation to put off sin and put on Christ's righteousness. The holy characteristics that he mentions in verses 12 through 14 that we're to replace sin with, we're told to put those on, and those all involve our interactions with others, though. Being compassionate, being kind, being humble, being meek and patient. Instead of being angry, be kind. Fight pride and condescension with meekness and patience. Bear with one another instead of gossiping. Instead of bitterness, forgive one another. And what's the source of each one of those attributes, though? He tells us in verse 14. It's love. Above all these, put on love, which binds all of these together in perfect harmony. As we're removing sin, as we're battling sin, which is caused by our selfish lust, it's caused by a focus on myself and what I want and what I think I need, each of these characteristics requires me now to focus on others instead. They require me to treat others as more important than myself and to love them. How do I love them? The same way God loves me. Extending to them mercy and grace and forgiveness. 
We're imperfect humans, though, we might say. So the objection could be, I can't love the way God does. Well, we are imperfect, and I can't fully love the way God does, but he still gives me the ability to emulate him. In Ephesians 5, as a husband, I'm commanded to love my wife like Christ loved the church. So I'm able to love in that way, just not perfectly. And as we saw in verses 10 and 11, that love that we now have the ability to show people breaks down all our barriers. Because these new selves are now being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's no division and we're all one in Christ. So if by the grace and the strength that God provides, I'm focused on loving someone, on really and truly loving them, I've got no room left to be angry with them. As John Owen said, if I filled the space of that cup, there's no room for that sin to come back. You want to see this in action? Pick someone that you're frustrated with or bitter with and pray for them. Don't try to fix them. Don't try to correct their problems so that they're simply less annoying to you. Simply pray for them each and every day. And you know what's going to happen? You're not going to be angry with them anymore. You're not going to be bitter against them anymore. You can't be angry and bitter with someone that you are genuinely praying for. When I'm tempted to be frustrated or angry with my wife or with a friend, if I remember to stop and to pray for them, to pray for their growth, to pray for their walk with the Lord, I can't stay frustrated with them. And then I can now replace that bitterness with the forgiveness that I'm able to give now. I can preach the gospel to myself by reminding myself of how much I've been forgiven. And now I can replace that sin with righteous actions. How about those sexual sins that Paul mentioned though? How do I fight those? Each of those sins are also rooted in the same self-focused desire to please and care only for myself. So I sin in those ways because I'm only loving myself. So by putting on these same characteristics though, I'm also battling those personal sins, not just the sins I face with, towards others. Each of these characteristics that Paul says to put on are rooted in loving others. So by putting those things on, I'm filling my cup with a focus on others and I've left less space for that lustful selfishness to fester and to grow. That's how I have victory over sin. I have victory over sin by having a heavenly mindset. I have victory over sin by putting off the old self, casting it away, running away from it, putting on the new self, which is made in the image of Christ. I need to replace my sin with Christ and with his righteousness. I need to replace it with the wonders and the joys of knowing him. And I have everything I need to do this in Christ, the preeminent one, and through his word that he's given me. In closing, I'd like to read this quote by John Owen. He says, on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this earth will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Pray with me now. Father, thank you so much for the word that instructs us, that guides us, that protects us. And Lord, we're thankful for this reminder this morning that we can have victory over sin because you've already defeated it at the cross. And Lord, we're thankful that in this journey of life, you've given us the path to defeat sin. We don't have to figure it out on our own. 
And so, Lord, we want to hate our sin. We want to battle with it on a daily basis. And, Lord, help us to do that by pursuing righteousness, by pursuing holiness. Lord, help us to take the gospel and the wonderful, beautiful truths that it contains and to study them and to meditate upon them and to never forget them. Lord, help us never to become familiar or comfortable with the truths of the gospel, but rather let each and every day they bring us joy or they bring us peace, they bring us comfort and they give us motivation to battle sin and to live for you because we know that that's where we're going to spend the rest of eternity, worshiping you. Thank you, God.